Welcome to Third Country Radio on BFF.FM, Best Frequencies Forever, coming to you live and loud uh, very early in the morning on uh, Thursday, September 21st, and of course, uh, anytime, anywhere in the world, uh, on demand at BFF.FM. We hope that you're having a wonderful morning so far, even if it is very, very early there on the West Coast. Uh, over here in Northeast Ohio, we are struggling to get ourselves working, uh, as as you hear this. Uh, but um, we decided, Katie and I were thinking about what we wanted to do for this week's show. And I am a, um, I'm a big fan of a YouTube channel uh, that I kind of discovered almost by accident. Uh, it was... Um, it was just one of those things that um, uh, that I kind of like like stumbled upon. Uh, it's a uh, music reviewer who um, who plays basically. She has a lot of vinyl. Um, her name is Abigail Devoe, and uh, she reminded us both of a very important, a very important anniversary that is happening. In fact, when you hear this. On September 21st, it will be 30 years to the day since the release of Nirvana's final uh, official studio album, In Utero. Yeah, and it's kind of amazing to think that you know it's been 30 years already mm. uh, for for that album. Um, Nirvana, of course, you know, kind of a a, a seminal band in rock and roll. Mm. Uh, you know, when when you think about bands that that really changed the genre uh nirvana is is one of the ones that kind of immediately comes up for me mm. uh, i know that there are some people who will contest that uh who will say <laughs> that you know maybe they weren't as important as some other bands but i i i think they're the first band that i really remember coming along and changing the musical landscape mm. i would have been uh probably about 12 or 13 um a little bit younger, I believe, when uh, when the first Nirvana album came out. But mm. you know, they were just kind of starting to to enter my musical consciousness. You know, I, I, you when you're a small child, you listen to you know whatever your parents are listening to, yeah. basically. Uh, but it's around you know junior high school age when you really start to pay attention to music and learn a little bit more about what bands are cool, what bands are not. You know who your friends are listening to, like who who you should be listening to to be popular, <laughs> to be part of these zeitgeist, and 
there's definitely a period before Nirvana mm-hmm. and after Nirvana. Um, and of course, after after Nirvana. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, we both uh, discussed this um, off air. We're both oldest children mm-hmm. and in our respective families. So we did not have any older siblings to guide our musical journey, so to speak. But um, we both had older cousins, and I remember one of my older cousins, he got very into the whole grunge scene. I would have been around uh, seven, uh, seven going on eight when it, when Nevermind came out, and um, I would have been, uh, let's see, ni- 1993, so it would have been nine years old mm-hmm. when, when In Utero came about. So I, uh, you know, by the time Nirvana were no more, uh, I, I I had not even hit preteens yet, so I only remember occasionally seeing the video for um, "Smells Like Teen Spirit" yeah. on TV, and then fast forward about eight or nine years, I did not hear "Nevermind" the album uh, until I was about fifteen or sixteen years old, and at that point, you know, like you said. My musical tastes were kind of dictated by whatever my parents were listening to. I was beginning to get into music that I liked myself and and have bands that I loved. Uh, R.E.M. was actually uh, my first band that I think was 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 for me. And uh, and I and I got into Radiohead as well. But those were bands that were kind of like you know, in, in the case of Radiohead, OK Computer had come out, and, yeah. and so they were just everywhere. Uh, but I don't think there was ever a moment that hit me musically as hard as the moment that Smells Like Teen Spirit ended and In Bloom came on. And I'd never heard a rock song that sounded like that. It just it you know it was the big opening riff and I'm like okay so I know what this is and then it came to like this juddering halt and you had that like militaristic punk rock riff <laughs> and it was like you know I, I was 16 years old and I was like this is this is this is this is the gateway into my entire musical journey <laughs> for the next 10 years. Yeah, see, and, and I wish that I could say that I had a similar experience, but the fact of the matter is that, that to this day I'm still a bit of a Nirvana uh, newbie. Mm. Um, and I, I've heard Nirvana songs on the radio, as, as most people have. It's always kind of sobering when you listen to the uh, the radio stations here, the classic rock radio stations, mm-hmm. and you hear, you know, coming up next, ACDC, Def Leppard, and Nirvana. Oh, and you're yeah, like, wait, wait a minute, wait, wait, <laughs> no, wait, back up. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, um, the people that I knew, with the exception of my cousin, mm-hmm. who who listened to Nirvana for like kind of a hot minute, and then you know went on to something else because he was a bit older. Um, the people that I knew that listened to Nirvana, and 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 forgive me for for saying this for sounding very stereotypical, it was all very angry mm-hmm. white boys. Oh yeah, very angry, and and so and they they were super super into it, you know, mm. and and. I think I don't think that it was 
it wasn't necessarily because of the music itself. Yeah. It was just their mindset. But like, in addition to being super into Nirvana, they also had like this very nihilistic streak about them. Of like, yeah. you know, everything sucks. Why should you be happy when everything's terrible? Etc. 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 And and for me, that was like very much a turn off. I didn't, mm. you know, I, I I I always tried to be nice to everybody. I always tried to be friendly with with everybody. But they're kind of reached a point with some of these people that I'm like, they're just not pleasant to be around. Which is a terrible shame because if you read any of Kurt Cobain's personal writings or if you listen to him in interviews, I mean, it, it's very clear there was a guy who, who cared quite a lot, who cared quite a lot about the music that he made and the people in his life and was a, was a very sensitive person. And unfortunately, might have been too sensitive. Yeah. For for this world. Um, yeah, and it's it's a shame that I didn't realize that either. Mm. Um, but but basically, like what I was what I was getting at is that I I took a very different musical path mm. in high school, so I didn't I didn't listen to a lot of Nirvana, and then of course you know I got to college, like very you know exposed to all kinds of music there. So it wasn't really until I met you that I met somebody who who listened to Nirvana and like could appreciate the lyrics, could appreciate the, the history of the band mm. of, of Kurt Cobain himself, but didn't have that, like that weird emotional baggage where you, you wanted to be Kurt Cobain. And mm. when he, you know, sadly passed for some reason, instead of being sad, instead of mourning a talent, it was just this, this, this simmering rage <laughs> of like, you know, who do I idolize now? Yeah. Now there's like, it, it, cause, because, uh, li- listeners who do not know, because there are many of them now, um, who, who are too young to remember this, the the nineties was supposed to be the decade of grunge, mm. like tons of bands that all sounded somewhat similar to uh, to Nirvana or were fr- from the Pacific Northwest. Tons of those bands got signed. Kurt Cobain passed away, and those bands were still signed to labels. You know, often quite successful. Pearl Jam, you know, yeah. is one yeah. of them. Uh, but there was this sudden mad scramble of, oh no, yeah, this was supposed to be the decade of grunge, and now like the king of grunge is gone, <laughs> and so you had all kinds of different trends, and I kind of rode some of those trends. Uh, I still have the Squirrel Nut Zippers CD that I bought <laughs> in high school because because swing was fun, jazz was fun, and it was weird, and I'm I'm a big fan of weird music. Um, but yes, so I think during this episode, Connor is going to be the one to talk very intelligently about Nirvana, and I will offer what observations I can. Well, this is good, because this means that, you know, you can go on a journey as well. Uh, we opened up, of course, with Heart Safe Box, which was the lead single from In Utero, and we're going to be playing more songs from that album, as well as a number of covers of, of Nirvana, uh, bands that influenced the band and various sort of demos and, and, and B-sides and all sorts of things like that. Uh, I think with that introduction out of the way, we'll keep things rolling here. Uh, so coming up pretty soon, uh, like I said, you're going to hear a couple of, you're going to hear a very interesting cover of Francis Farmer will have her events on Seattle. But first, coming from In Utero, this is Nirvana and the song is Very Ape.
Welcome back to BFF.FM, Best Frequencies Forever, where we are celebrating Nirvana and the 30th anniversary of the release of In Utero, uh, the, uh, f- unfortunately, the, the final studio album by the band. We kick things off there with Very Ape, uh, which is a, a, a song, I, a personal favorite of mine from that album, um, and uh, followed that with Dumb, which kind of captured the more sort of sensitive side, I think, of, of Kurt. He was always, a, uh, as, a, as a writer and as, a, as a, just as a person, like all of us, very complex. And I think that the image of what people see of him uh, has kind of developed a little bit since the early 90s. When when kind of grunge was seen as this very nihilistic, you know, very very uh, dour um, genre, obviously it, it was. But I mean, you could say the same thing about you know heavy metal or punk rock. You know, you think about I mean, you think about the first Black Sabbath album, and it's about you know. Yeah, but that had a point. <laughs> now, I, I think I think with. I think that what what happened there um, mm. is that you know, like yes, metal you know metal has darker elements to mm. it. Um, I often joke, and, and I know that uh, if you've been listening to the show for very long, you've probably heard me reference you know the the Led Zeppelin versus you know Black Sabbath kind of dichotomy <laughs> there. And I think that if you know anything about Sabbath, mm. uh, you know that they're from the north of England. Yeah, and you know from this heavily industrial area. Um, you know, that, that was not seeing great economic times at mm. the time the band came about. So it felt very justified. Of course they're going to be upset. Like, it, as, as somebody who, you know, born and raised in the Rust Belt, I get that to a certain degree. Hmm. Um, where, you know, it can you can be angry because you, you look around and you're like, you know, there's, there's all these factories that are closed up or, you know, there's all this pollution in, you know... Uh, in the environment, there's there's various things that can you know kind of upset you, can make you a little bit angry. Mm. In the '90s, I don't think too many people were thinking about the Pacific Northwest mm. uh, unless they were like big fans of uh, of Twin Peaks. And <laughs> but the thing that that like at least with Twin Peaks, um, and obviously this is this is not true uh, as far as like you know the idyllic sense that you got, but. You know, if you're from middle America who you've never been to the West Coast in your entire life and you you watch a show like Twin Peaks or you think about, you know, the Pacific Northwest mm. and we have this this impression of a, a lush and verdant and beautiful part of the country. Mm. And in I, I refer again um, to Twin Peaks because that was like the one thing that I can really think that was taking place. Not mm. like, well, the X-Files came a little bit later because that would have yeah. been afterward. Um, but, you know, you think about the setting of that show and it's this small town. It's got a little diner. And yes, weird things <laughs> are afoot. Weird things are definitely afoot. But you you look at that environment and you're like, how could anybody be upset in this place that looks like it's out of a fantasy novel mm. you know you drive out of like even you know even small towns you drive out of small towns and it's just stunning mountain vista after stunning mountain vista endless forests and and yes like there there's logging you know the logging mm. industries up there and, and so on and so forth but 
you have this sense of like, wow, it would be amazing to live there. Mm. I, I grew up desperate to live in Seattle, not because of the grunge move, but because of Frasier. I yeah. wanted to be the <laughs> urban sophisticate who lived on the West Coast, yeah. not in not in California. That's where that's where people go to get murdered. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, everybody sorry, in California. California. Yeah, this is this is this is my my you know small town young child mental map that I am referring to in this moment in this place in time. But, you know, Seattle was, was seen as this mm. place of, of culture. Like, it, it sounds silly to say, but, like, Starbucks came from Seattle. So the idea of the, of the fancy coffee shop, where you didn't just go and get, you know, some, some coffee in a, in a paper cup and, you know, maybe dump a couple creamers in it. You could get these things like you'd never heard of before. What is a latte? What is a frappuccino? <laughs> um, and so I think for a lot of us who... who you know, who did not know like what life was actually like in the Pacific Northwest at mm. that time. It made no logical sense. Mm. Why are these kids angry? It's the nineties. We just won a major war in the Middle East. Nobody's getting drafted. The economy's doing like pretty well. We had some, you know, like early nineties kind of, you know, a little rough and bumpy, but but things are getting a little bit better. There's a certain degree of optimism. Um and then these like angry kids in and these are this is this is the impression that that i got when you heard like kind of parents talking mm. about this this new music these like angry nihilistic kids who looked like they hadn't showered in a couple of weeks <laughs> wearing like you know filthy ill-fitting clothes come swaggering out of the, of the pacific northwest to tell our kids that everything's terrible and nothing matters so they should just go shoot themselves it's it's interesting that you um that you bring up like the origins of Black Sabbath as like you know the north of England industrial towns and cities like Birmingham you know where you know the members of Black Sabbath would have grown up hearing like the loud like hammer and tongs you know the sound of industrial factories yeah they would the, have seen the, the the great you know the smoke the from smoke the furnace yeah. yeah very Mordor esque if yeah. we're gonna get super nerd about it. It's it's interesting that you that you that you bring that up because there is that interesting parallel with um, with Aberdeen, Washington, and these other small towns because um, Aberdeen is is where Kurt was born and raised, and and later on um, he moved to like Olympia and Seattle, and what's interesting about that area of of the states, um, there is a there is a great um, series of essays called our band could be your life and um it, it's it's 13 essays based on uh, on 13 bands that kind of forged the you know the u.s indie music scene um the underground music scene uh throughout the 1980s and one of those bands is Mudhoney, uh who were one of the sort of breakout early breakout grunge bands uh, but it was more that that essay was more about like the creation of sub pop, from which Nirvana kind of got their first kind of break as you know uh, as true true label, getting their first album released, etc. And and what's interesting when you read about like the the scene in which they came from, the the Pacific Northwest was kind of one of those places where uh, where big bands did not really tour. You know, like if you if you think about it, 
it's easy to tour like in in the in the northeast you know it's easy to do like new york and new jersey and you might do like philadelphia or pittsburgh you could do dc if you want to go further further west you know you could play cleveland you could play detroit you could play chicago uh, you could play Indianapolis, like you could play Nashville. Nashville, absolutely. You could go down to like you know there were there are big cities in Florida and yeah. and Georgia and the likes. And then on the West Coast, um, you've got California, and then and then it's it's a really like California is a really big state. Yeah. And you've got California, you've got Nevada. You know if you want to go to like Reno or or Las Vegas, you know, and and play there. Um, what what was notable about the Pacific Northwest is you can't you had Seattle like way up there, mm-hmm. and you had Van you had like you know you had you you could maybe get to Vancouver, Portland, Portland but a lot of those, but but what happened essentially was you had these you kind of had like this uh, the way the way people who who were in that scene at the time put it you had like this small section of the country that big bands normally didn't get to primarily because it was just it was kind of a little bit it was just it was just too far out of the way for for most bands to to make the jaunt because you would have to go all the way up there and then you'd have to come all the way back to get to the other cities you know the cities in the midwest the cities in the south and in the east coast that were kind of closer together and 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 you could tour there more more often and the result of that was that you got this kind of like weirdness (laughs) in in the pacific northwest and you know you got that you got that kind of like insular sound that turned into grunge as the weird bands that kind of forged a, 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 a fan base there gave birth to other bands like Nirvana that were also into like you know the Pixies and the Beatles and, and stuff like that um, so it, it's, it's an interesting parallel because you're right in that the Pacific Northwest is a beautiful part of the world but I imagine in much the same way that someone who maybe lives out in like you know who who someone who maybe might live like a half an hour away from the Grand Canyon grows up next to the Grand Canyon their entire life and people will come and flock to this area to that area and think this is this is gorgeous this is beautiful I guess if you live in that area for your whole life you you become kind of like you're like yeah it's really nice here but there's also like a lot of problems and and it's and I suppose you could say the same thing about like the north of England, where Black Sabbath are from, or or any number of bands from Ireland. You know, Ireland is a beautiful country, mm-hmm. but when Bono was young and angry, he still had things to be angry about. Yeah, and and you heard that in early U two. So it's it's an interesting parallel that you know I, I don't I haven't really considered, and I really should because Kurt Cobain loved Black Sabbath <laughs> <laughs> and Led Zeppelin, actually. Yeah, and it, it's kind of funny because you mentioned you know like the, these weird bands like this kind of little isolated you know like permutations of, of different mm. things and that's for um so for for for, li- for our listeners um i'm a big nerd and i have yet to grow out of it but a lot of my much cooler uh classmates 
they wanted to go to Seattle because suddenly there's this explosion of bands coming out of the Pacific Northwest. And, you know, it used to be, oh, like, I want to go to New York or I want to go to Los Angeles. And suddenly there was this third city, this third American city on the map of, you know, we need to go there because that's where all the cool kids come from. <laughs> and, uh, and I, you know, and, and America loves itself some moral panics. So while all of the kids are going like, oh, wow, I want to go to Seattle. I want to, like... You know, being the next grunge band or whatever, that's when you had the parents being, you know, a bit of, of, of pearl clutching and going like, oh, no, like, you know, who are these who are these role models for our youth? Why, you know, like and and, and also the, the the traditional kind of generational divide. Mm. I think uh, I think you had, you know, I mean, let's face facts that there are not every band who came, you know, came out in the, in the 60s and 70s was like a, a happy, you know, a happy fun time band like Black Sabbath, obviously not. Um, some of Pink Floyd's stuff gets way darker than mm, anything Nirvana yeah. ever put out. Mm. Like, like shockingly dark. You listen to that stuff and you're like, oh my god, is Roger Waters okay? <laughs> um, but by and large, there was like this kind of in pop culture, this um, this American optimism of like, mm. you know, yeah, things might be hard where you live, but you you can you can get through. It's gonna be okay. Just you know, just keep on trucking. And and I think there was a certain amount of anxiety. That, uh, that adults had when kids started to uh, listen to music that made it seem like maybe things aren't going to be okay because if things aren't going to be okay how are kids going to react to that yeah it's an interesting it's it's interesting because there was a lot of optimism and in the 90s you felt that optimism you know and however I think when you think about like you know Nirvana kind of came out of like the heart, the punk and the post-hardcore scene. Which again, not a ton of people. Not a lot, of ton of people yeah. were into. Yeah, yeah, not not yeah. a broad. It's not a broad part of pop culture. I think it was interesting because I, I I always recall um, Des Kadena, who was uh, one of the frontmen for Black Flag, and he was he's he's been in a bunch of bands. He's like he's just a, a punk rocker who's been around for so long, and I remember him being interviewed in a band in a, in a in a documentary about American hardcore music hardcore punk and he recalls in the 1980s Ronald Reagan's Morning in America mm -hmm. uh, advertisement but, you know and he said Reagan said it's morning in America and we came along and say no it's midnight <laughs> and I think for and so I think if there's definitely I can definitely understand like the shock of of like a a, a, a mainstream culture which has it's just so full of optimism to find, like, actually, for 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 a number of people, for like a large number of people, there's a there's a distinct pain, emotionally and politically, that has been waiting for someone to give a voice to it. Well, and we and were yeah. also coming out of the like kind of the satanic panic of mm. the of the mid to late eighties as well. Because when you were talking about, you know, like it's midnight, for some reason I immediately thought of Nine Inch Nails. Mm. An act out of uh, Trent Reznor is from, he's from Pennsylvania, but we like to claim him in Cleveland. Nine Inch Nails is from Cleveland. And that was another band that yeah. parents were like, what, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. Um, but, you know, Nirvana was kind of at the forefront of that, at least in the public consciousness, because yeah. they became so big. Mm. Um so so yeah, it was very much this 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 clash of cultures, this clash mm. of the titans kind of thing, and like you said, I think a lot of people were were kind of taken aback to know that like underneath this veneer of 
shiny, happy people. You're, you're an <laughs> REM fan. That there was something else going on, mm. and I think that was part of the the reason that there was such uh, such distress. Yeah. Um, but but hey, the kids loved it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we also played a cover of Frances Farmer Will Have Her Revenge on Seattle. Uh, that was by Jay Raytard. And um, I actually, I, I want to change it up a little bit and play another cover right now uh, from a band who was fronted by uh, another guy who came out of, who, who first broke out in that scene and is also sadly no longer with us, uh, the uh, irreplaceable Scott Weiland. Oh, yeah. Um, coming up next, um, we will we will talk about Scott because... This next band is is fantastic, and also a member of this band was one of the very last people to see Kurt Cobain alive. Um, so coming up next, uh, with a cover of Negative Creep, this is Velvet Revolver. <laughs> This is a rage, this is a rage, this is a rage and it's cold. This is 
every day, BFF.FM strengthens communities across our region by sharing superb music with everyone. Music to connect people with each other and the community they're part of. Carefully curated programs on BFF.FM enrich and engage with music you know and surprise you with music new to your years. Music on BFF.FM just makes any day better. Your donation to BFF.FM is an investment in the power of music to uplift, to connect all of us together. Please take a moment now to invest in the power of music at BFF.FM.
songs there uh you're listening to third country radio on bff.fm best frequencies forever we kicked off that trio there with a fantastic cover of negative creep by velvet revolver uh as we were as i as i mentioned um velvet revolver a uh, sort of a super group of sorts yeah very much so uh who were like i i'll now it's funny because um you and I come. You and I approach rock and roll in different in different directions. Obviously, I I, I I've never heard a like a bad Velvet Revolver song, but I, I wouldn't say I was like I was big into them. But I know that um, I know I know you were you're like you know you're you're a big fan. You were a big fan of Velvet Revolver. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know if I'm, I'd say like a super fan or anything like that, but um, but it was it was a big deal. Mm. It was a big deal to see um, you know. Essentially, a, a reformation of the original lineup of Guns N' Roses, for for lack of a better term, you mm. had you had enough of them in there that I say yeah. I feel confident in, in saying that because you had uh, Slash, obviously guitar god, guitar yeah. legend. Um, you had Matt Sorum on mm-hmm. on drums, um, and you had uh, you had Duff McKagan, yeah. uh, who was the you know the bass player and also did uh, backing vocals, as did Matt Sorum. Mm-hmm. Um, Slash does not sing. Slash stands there in his amazing hat and, and looks just, every inch and just plays guitar like no one else. Yeah, and and that's another kind of interesting thing is that you said you know we approach rock differently, and one thing that that I I've always kind of noticed about you and your approach to music is that like. You you see, you tend to see artists as artists first, mm. um, and then you know, and then like legends later. I don't know if it's a, like a product of where I grew up. I don't know if it's just something inherent to to my family and how I was raised. You know, listening to to music, but there's a certain element of like, I guess you could say deification. And I'm not saying mm. that you know, you know, we don't, we, you know, I've, I've never been like, oh, like you know, they have magic powers or whatever. But there's like this feeling that when rock stars that big come to Cleveland, <laughs> it's like it's like the Norse gods come down the Rainbow Bridge <laughs> from Valhalla, and it's just like, oh my God, they're here! So I, I did see Velvet Revolver live once mm. in concert. It was amazing. Um, Scott Weiland was a, a skinny little guy uh, who mm. ran all around the stage, and at one point, stage dove. And uh, this was an outdoor event, um, 
was at uh, Nautica Pavilion. So when he stage dove, uh, if the if the people in the crowd had not caught him, he would have just impacted directly onto pavement. This was not a grass, you know. This is not grass or artificial turf. This was like, I, I it's in the flats, uh, mm. which in Cleveland is kind of a, a former industrial area. So there's lots of areas that have been paved over, and so yeah, he would have just right on the on the pavement, and uh, it was very funny to to watch uh, Slash kind of try not to like do a big grin because that is not that that's is not what Slash does, does. No, yeah yeah no. Sla- Slash is you know he is his guitar god man <laughs> uh, but it was kind of funny to see like the, the corners of his mouth uh, perk <laughs> up um, especially when he looked at Duff who was immediately like just head left and right like eyes <laughs> wide with worry where is Scott Scott is small well I need to leap into the crowd after Scott <laughs> Me, like, I don't know how tall Duff is, mm. and it's very hard to judge height when you're like down, you know, at, at ground level and the stage is up. Uh, but but Duff is a very big man. He's tall. Mm. He's not he's not stocky, but he's <laughs> very tall. And uh, it was it was very interesting to watch that. I'm sorry. There's there's my velvet revolver. No. Sorry. No, See, you no, got me going. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I I had a I had a I had a very mean joke in my head when you were talking about like you know Velvet Revolvers like a super group like basically like you had like the the pretty much the original lineup of Guns N' Roses and then you had like you know, then you had Scott Weiland frontman for Stone Temple Pilots an an incredible singer in his own right um, and another person who was gone way too soon and I had a terrible joke in my head where it's like it's like if Guns N' Roses had a good singer oh. <laughs> I also forgot to mention uh, Dave Kushner, who was uh, f- uh, formerly from uh, Wasted Youth. Oh, yeah. Um, he was he's in that group as well. So I want to make sure that everybody gets mentioned. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, it, I, I, the, the friend that I went with, uh, Jean, I told her at one point, this is as close as we're ever going to get to seeing the original <laughs> lineup because all these guys hate Axl Rose. <laughs> Like this, this is if you've yeah. ever wanted, if you ever wanted to see Guns N' Roses in concert, this is the best I can do. Yeah, uh, Hoobastank opened for them. Yeah, well, you know, you can't win them all, baby. Yeah. Uh, what, what's interesting, I made a I made a reference to this um, before we played the song. Um, Duff Duff McCoggan, he was on a plane. Mm-hmm. Uh, flying back to Seattle because Duff is a Seattle native. Yeah. Uh, he grew up in uh, in the largely working class sort of university district and uh, grew up in a proper Irish-American family, <laughs> which might explain the drinking problem later on. Ooh. We don't want to stereotype, but I get to. And um, what happened was Duff sat down and sitting next to him on the plane was Kurt Cobain. And Kurt had just escaped from a um, from a rehab clinic, uh, he had voluntarily uh, com- you know he had voluntarily entered the clinic, uh, so he could have left at any time. But instead, what he did was he was sitting in the backyard uh, in this in this clinic, uh, sitting on like a deck chair or something. And rather than kind of get up and go, actually, I've decided I want to leave. He decided he needed to go right then and there. So he so he scaled the wall. Uh, which is an impressive feat for a skinny guy like Kurt, and uh, climbed over the wall and ran uh, and made his escape that way. See, now it's now it's my turn to make a, a mean joke, um, very obscure pop culture reference because that's all that millennial humor really is. Yeah. Uh, but when you said that he, he could have left at any time, all I could think of was uh, a, a scene from the show Rick and Morty <laughs> where one of the characters is is put basically in like 
a babysitting oh, area yeah. because he's not a very smart guy, and he decides that you know he he you know his he he feels that uh, you know his dignity is being stripped here, and so he announces yeah. that he's going to leave, and the person that, at the reception desk goes, "Yeah, you can you can do that at any time." Yeah, and and that's all like, I can think of. I'm very sorry. That could have been Kurt. Yeah, but no, it was like he was he's Gillis Wallen. Yeah, uh, Duff McCagan uh, was flying. He was flying home. Um, and uh, Kurt was sitting beside him. And if you know anything about Nirvana and about Kurt Cobain, uh, it's that he had a very contentious relationship with Axl Rose. Uh, and, and Nirvana had a kind of contentious like view of Guns N' Roses. It was that old new guard, old guard thing mm. because, you know... Guns N' Roses was never really a hair metal band. Like, they were no yeah. poison. You know, they, they were not poison. They were not Motley Crue. But they had that... They were, like, the distilled essence of that that danger, that kind of seedy underbelly yeah. of the Sunset Strip. And so for a long time, reigned supreme as, as Rock's bad boys. And then Nirvana happened. Yeah. Nirvana yeah. came along and kind of, like, poked a... Kind of, like, put a pin in that balloon of macho, of macho ego... And, and, and Axl Rose will never forgive him Axel, for it. yeah, like Axl, anytime like Axl Rose tried to act like the big man in front of, like, in, in like there's a story of, of Kurt and Courtney being backstage at some event and Axl Rose passes by and Courtney makes some crack at Axl and Axl turns around and he, and he says to Kurt, tell your blank to shut up. And Kurt... Kurt kind of like puffs out his chest. He goes, "Shut up," <laughs> to Courtney, you know, and and they laughed at him, and he left. And um, so, it, so the the deal between Nirvana and and, and Guns N' Roses, primarily with Axel, um, was always kind of contentious. But despite that, um, Duff and Kurt were sitting next to each other on this plane and they spoke to each other on this, you know, and, and, and Duff was like Kurt. Duff came of age in the punk rock scene in the Pacific mm -hmm. Northwest. Like Kurt, punk was in a couple of like punk bands and like underground acts before he kind of, you know, he kind of, before he hit on like a few bigger acts and then eventually like Guns N' Roses and Superstardom. Much like Kurt was in a few different things that kind of fell apart before eventually Nirvana kind of coalesced and blew up and yeah. superstardom. So they had an awful lot in common. And, and including, you, you mentioned earlier, but in all seriousness, you know, some, some pretty severe substance some abuse very issues. Very severe substance abuse issues. And Duff by that point, you know, had, had gotten clean. And he spoke with Kurt, and it was they had this conversation, and Duff talked to Kurt about his own struggles with alcohol, with substance abuse, and um, Duff tells the story of, of 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 the plane coming down, and um, asking Kurt, "Hey, do you want to go somewhere and grab some lunch?" And Kurt kind of going, "Yeah, sounds good." And the plane landing, and Duff got up out of his seat and uh, turned to get his baggage from the overhead compartment. And by the time he turned back around and looked, the seat was empty. And Kurt, Kurt had already left. And, you know, that makes... That means Duff was one of, like, a handful of people um, that we know saw Kurt um, unfortunately, in, in the days before... Um, his sad demise. Yeah, and that's the thing with with Duff is that he kind of has this this reputation of being a really nice guy, despite you know despite being in, in Guns N' Roses. But like just 
he's he's always just been seen as this really like really chill guy you know wants to help people out mm. um and it's it's so sad to me that he he was able to take care of himself he tried to help kurt cobain later tried to help scott wyland mm. and he, he does his best yeah. i always like i don't know a ton about the guy but i always just kind of feel a little bit of sympathy for him yeah. because like God love you, man. You're you're doing the Lord's work. Uh, and, he, seriously, he, he is. He does. You know, I have a lot of respect for Duff McCoggan as just as a person and also as a musician because yeah. I I love a great bassist and Duff has always been a really great bassist. Um, almost went to work for Microsoft. Yeah, yeah. yeah almost went back to school. Uh, mm-hmm. Got an accounting degree. Almost went to work for yeah. Microsoft. So that's another thing. Like he's he's you know good good hunt on his shoulders and not a big ego. Yeah. Oh, he's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we also uh, got on a bit of a tangent there, but I think that was an important one because you know I think I think it's 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 good it's good to discuss the musicians who had to deal with Kurt Cobain, <laughs> and uh, after that you heard from their first album Bleach. Um, certainly, the, let's face it, it was the best song on Bleach about a girl, which has a, a a very wonderful story of Kurt writing a song for his then girlfriend Tracy Miranda. Uh, because she said you never write song you've never written a song about me like you've written a song about like the cast from Leave It to Beaver but you never <laughs> written a song about me and and Kurt um, listening to Meet the Beatles like on repeat all day and then sitting down and writing that song about a girl and uh, for a lot of people like Butch Vig who then went on who would who would later produce Nevermind he in an interview mentioned like it was the first that was the first song that that showed him that Kurt was you know he was he he was big in the he was big into the punk scene but Kurt also had a very he, he had he had a very keen pop sensibility that maybe he kind of struggled with in a way cuz you know you, you get a sense that he wanted to be true to his punk roots but you know he he was a big fan of the Beatles he was a big fan of 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 pop groups and and of, and of rock and roll groups that 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 played those you know played played catchy songs like you know even then like you know he he liked the Ramones yeah and the Ramones wrote three minute love songs that were very catchy like you know simple and and simple 50s style rock and roll love songs yeah and Kurt, when he wanted to, he could write a song like "About a Girl," which is very catchy and and very, very different from that sort of grungy, you know, like you know, fuzzy sound. Which is which is so funny to me. You you would not think I did. I would not think that that Kurt Cobain would have been. Um, I just realized when I say Kurt Cobain, is it Kurt Cobain? <laughs> Kurt Cobain. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but you you would not think that he would be a Beatles fan just because like his music is is very different from, mm. from them. But also, um, kind of alluding back to their whole you know like rock and roll vanguard changed the face of rock and roll. Um, there were so many there were so many people who were such ardent fans who were like, you know, this is the band. Everything before them is crap. Like don't don't listen to you know like just. You know, there is only one, yeah. um, and so I find it very funny. There, there were guys that I knew who were super into Nirvana at at a time when uh, 
my 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 dad was helping me learn a bit more about mm. musical influences and like oh you you like this band that's out right now you know they sound an awful lot like like this band so kind of helping me to develop my musical history my my love of of uh, you know musical history of yeah. of various genres that came before me. Uh, and I often got accused of listening to your dad's music in this very like derogatory sort of, you know, how could you possibly listen to anything that came before Nirvana, <laughs> before the great rock god poet deigned to come down from Mount Olympus or possibly Mount St. Helens, probably Mount St. Helens because yeah. it's cooler because that thing <laughs> yeah. blew up, you know, like. M- meanwhile, meanwhile, like Nirvana are, are, are saying in, in interviews, yeah, when we wrote smells like teen spirit we were trying to riff up rip off the pixies and uh they they totally you know they 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 totally confess to to you know stealing the riff from more than a feeling by boston (laughs) yeah like i i i I will never forget figuring that out when they listen to it and being like wait a minute yeah i know that riff uh and also uh, another member of nirvana dave grohl somewhat recently did a pretty spot on excellent cover like a little bit of a harder rock cover because that's yeah, you know yeah. just what he does of the Bee Gees yeah of You Should Be Dancing by yeah. the Bee Gees and it's great by the way yeah absolutely I mean that's that's the thing like I, I think you have there is an image of, of of what Nirvana meant and I hope that with the benefit of hindsight I, I would hope that now that we're like 30 years removed from from In Utero uh, that People can kind of look back on it, and we have 30 years to reflect on, you know, on what influenced that band, uh, the, the 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 acts that came before them, the the the, the pop sensibilities that they had, and uh, and and hopefully, knock on wood, you know, people will reevaluate and see that you know there there was an image at the time of what. Nirvana and Kurt Cobain were and the reality much like the reality of all musicians all artists throughout all of, of, of recorded time is way more complex mm. and, and way more interesting absolutely yeah we uh, obviously are are celebrating Nirvana because today when you listen to this September 21st is the date that In Utero was released uh, 30 years ago and so we finished off that trio with Penny Royal T uh, from that album. Uh, another really great track uh, from from the band. And um, In Utero, um, engineered by Steve Albini, uh, who was, again, another punk rocker who came up in that scene in the 80s and, and brought that sensibility to whatever he did to the point that when the label heard the original like mix of In Utero, they were like, you, you gotta you gotta remix some of these tracks because we can't sell this. This is <laughs> <laughs> and the band, to their credit, the band relented. They 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 went to I think Scott Litt, who worked with REM, and allowed him to remix a few of the tracks on the album. So I mean, for all of Kurt Cobain's struggle to kind of to 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 get those two sides of himself like the punk rocker and 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 the guy who wanted to be successful like to to try to get those two sides to to kind of like mesh for all of his struggles to do that like he 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 was willing to compromise from time to time yeah um we are gonna play a few tracks now uh from a couple of bands that that were an influence on on Kurt Cobain um I don't know if Kurt 
was a big fan of, of Revolver, the Beatles album. For me, it's 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 probably my favorite Beatles record. Uh, I just I, I you could tell for me it was kind of like this is this is the first sign of what the Beatles were going to do. Yes, that was like kind the of studio. the turning point. This was yeah. Uh, for like, don't you're, don't, you're... don't get me started. Don't. <laughs> like, we'll do another. Sh- we'll do a show. Yeah, we'll. We should do a Beatles show. Yes. Let's do a Beatles show. Okay. Uh, but right now, this is this is um, for me one of the best Beatles songs ever, if not the best ever. And uh, I think it kind of encapsulated. Um, I think everything that Kurt really enjoyed about the Beatles because it's them messing around in the studio. And when Butch Vig was producing Nevermind, he would convince Kurt to do things like overdubs and, and stuff like that by saying John Lennon did it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and for Kurt, we're like, well, if John Lennon did it, then I guess I can do yeah. it too. So coming up next, here is uh, the Beatles with Tomorrow Never Knows. Oh, 
DJs are nice and the songs are good and it's right in your neighborhood so if you love music and you love friends listen to bff.fm
the story goes that Kurt called up one of his friends when he was uh, living in Olympia, Washington, and he said, hey, you got to come over. I just bought this record. It's so good. You got to check it out. Come over as soon as you can. So uh, the friend obviously, like, drops everything. Is like, yeah, sure, go on over to Kurt's place and uh, and check out this this great new record that he's raving about. And uh, Kurt Kurt just goes like, okay, sit right there. And he he goes over to his record player and he he puts it on and he brings the uh, sleeve over to show his friend. And the 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 sleeve is it, the, the cover is. Get the knack by the knack, and uh, and so his friend is like, okay, this is like a practical joke or something. Like Kurt's Kurt's having fun or something, and Kurt's sitting down. He goes, no, check this out, and so his friend is sitting there holding this 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 cover, this this record sleeve from you know power pop band the knack, and uh, and he's sitting there and he's watching Kurt, and Kurt is like nodding along he's got his eyes closed he's like clicking his he's snapping his fingers to like the rhythm and after a moment uh this this friend like you know this fellow punk rocker uh realized oh oh wow kurt's not joking he really likes this record You're listening to BFF.FM, Best Frequencies Forever, where we are celebrating uh, Nirvana on the 30th anniversary of the release of In Utero. And you did just hear My Sharona by The Knack, uh, a, a, a favorite band of Kurt. Uh, I was just telling Kitty uh, before we started recording that he had this list in one of his journals once of the top 50 records. And he he rated Get the Knack above like Combat Rock by The Clash, <laughs> and like Meet the Beatles and and so many other like classic rock and rock songs. It, rock it's bands. really and it's really amazing when you think about that because uh, I would not have guessed based on you know the songs that I've heard by Nirvana. There's not a lot of you know happy bouncy you know pop you know mm. pop top forty ready uh, <laughs> hits in there. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's 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 an interesting kind of like mix of of um, influences, I think, on Nirvana because even you know even when they went in to record um, in utero, mm-hmm. feeling kind of disappointed with the production on Nevermind, which they which they felt was overproduced. Uh, even when they were recording in utero with Steve Albini, you know, in the space of a week, kind of getting back to basics, you know, coming out with something which was rough and ready, they they were still willing to have some of the tracks remixed later on because the label was like, you know, we 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 really can't release it in this format. They were willing to compromise on some of that, and it is interesting to 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 note that like even even when they were trying to be their most abrasive. They they were still there were there there are still some like pop hooks in there to come through. You yeah, know? and I and I know that uh, there's kind of a I I do not know if this was a, a a joke or not. When I say that, I don't know if if Kurt meant this as a joke, but I seem to remember like hearing something that at a certain point in their the height of their popularity, Nirvana, Kurt was was getting asked by by you know A and R men mm. uh, and A and R women 
and our people at uh, at labels. You know, like what's what? What do you think? You know, they're asking his opinion on music. What do you think the next big group is going to be? And so, he, like he, there were there were groups like Shonen Knife, who mm. was who, who, as far as I know, were were virtually unknown outside of Japan until Kurt said like this. I like this band. They're cool. Yeah. And the man had good taste. Shonen yeah. Knife is a lot of fun. Mm. Uh, they they are a, a Japanese trio of uh, three women, and they they sing a lot about like kind of like what like food yeah and and just like cute little fun things. They do fantastic covers of uh, of all kinds of different groups. My favorite I think is their their cover of uh, Top of the World yeah, by, by yeah. Carpenters is a lot of fun. They actually did a song for Powerpuff Girls, uh, Supergirl. Oh yes, that's a great yeah. one. Yeah, but um, but it, it was kind of interesting. You know, it's, for me it's it's kind of interesting to think. You know, like. The, the media perception of the the dour tortured artist Kurt mm. Cobain, you know, like some guy coming up, you know, Kurt, who do you think we should sign? And I just you always just picture him, you know, curled up on this couch alone in the dark, just kind of like slowly turning his head and going like, Shonen Knife's pretty cool. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's it. I, I, and it's interesting, you know, that um, the the band we played before the Knack, uh, Pixies, mm-hmm. with the classic track Gigantic, were a much like Nirvana, they had this very kind of like abrasive sound to them, but they were also they also recorded songs that were just packed full of hooks, mm-hmm. you know, packed full of like of, of of the sort of thing that just kind of got stuck in your in your in your ear, like like the bass line to Gigantic, you know. Yeah, I, I always think of uh, "Here Comes Your Man." Yeah, that's a that's a wonderful pop song, actually. Yeah, yeah. and. Uh, Speaking of and speaking of pop, uh, before that we heard "Tomorrow Never Knows" by mm. the Beatles. Uh, there's that cliche that that you know, whenever anybody is asked, you know, oh, what are your influences? Bands will always say the Beatles. It's mm. it's become a, a joke, you know, to the point that it's a joke. And you know, and I think it's High Fidelity, where yeah. uh, where Jack Black kind of like starts yelling at that guy, like, <laughs> oh, what are, who are your influences? Oh, the Beatles? Like, how, how about Beethoven? <laughs> It's true, isn't it? Like, I mean, we were talking about this, this, you know, uh, prior to recording this, how, uh, like, the the landscape of popular music today would be so different were it not for the work of the Beatles and the, their creative output, a, a, a massive amount of amazing music in a very short space of time for, for all the time that they were actually a recording act. Now, now, the question that I have for you is sometimes you can hear, you know, influences in different bands. Uh, mm. for, for me, one band that comes to mind is, is The Darkness. You can definitely tell which brother was into, like, ACDC, Thin Lizzy, you know, mm. some of the harder rock and, you know, Zeppelin, some of the harder rock and bands in the 70s, and which brother definitely listened to a whole lot of Van Halen and a whole bunch of, of hair metal, mm. um, you know, Def Leppard and things like that. You can just tell in the guitar work. And, you know, sometimes you can tell, like, usually with, with groups that are a little bit more, you know, poppy, like, um, like Supergrass. Yeah. I always think about, uh, you know, the song All Right, oh, which yeah. is more, uh, kind of more monkeys, but you can definitely hear, like, the Beatles influence mm. oh, there. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and for me, like, personally, I don't hear that, or I have not heard that in the Nirvana songs that I've heard, mm. with the caveat that the Nirvana songs I've heard are the ones that get played on the radio all the time. Yeah. I. I, I have not heard, you know, a, a Nirvana deep cut. If you ask me what, you know, what the B-side to, you know, Smells Like Teen Spirit is, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you. If you asked me what the track listing was for In Utero, wouldn't be able to tell you. Yeah. So, uh, but but since you are more of a, a fan, more of an aficionado, do, do you hear like a distinct 
influence from the Beatles in any of their songs, or do you think it was just kind of like that that foundational influence of you know I yes I too can get together with my childhood mm. friends and make a band. I I do think it it's it's very foundational because even even a band that might say they hate the Beatles or what have you like for instance the, the Manic Street Preachers. Uh, w- said some pretty awful things about the Beatles and about John Lennon which is you know fair enough but you know you guys can can say all you want but, you know and it was you know it was the late 80s early 90s they were young and 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 you know uh trying to be like you know the 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 enfant terrible of of the British music scene yeah but you know you can you know at the end of the day though the Beatles still laid a foundation upon which the Manic Street Preachers worked. And the same could definitely be said of Nirvana. The The popular story is about him, about Kurt listening to Meet the Beatles all day before writing uh, About a Girl. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, you can definitely look at About a Girl and, and see that that's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's definitely more it's it, it's more it's poppier than some of the other stuff on that first album bleach mm-hmm. um, i but i also think it's a bit more um representative of the kind of stuff that kurt cobain was into because yeah he loved black flag and he loved like you know punk rock and hardcore punk and you know uh, you know, listening to the Melvins and and, and a lot of like you know and, and acts like Tad. That I was gonna came say out. like very kind of like abrasive. Yeah, you know, and and you know he he was very he he was very familiar with, with uh, people in like the Riot Girl scene. Like he was friends with Kathleen Hanna and uh, dated um, the drummer of Bikini Kill, whose name escapes me unfortunately right now. Um, the song Aneurysm is actually about her and about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's about um, a a a a time when he basically spent all day with her, and the effect of like like their conversation and just the 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 emotional impact he had on him was so great that on the way home he had to have a friend of his stop the car so he could get out and actually like throw up. He was so overwhelmed. Jeez. By by. He was so overwhelmed by by the emotional impact of being with this very very opinionated and intelligent and strong-willed woman that like it, it was it it just affected him in such a in such a way and he was like ridiculously in love with her uh, and 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 also intimidated like he he it was the same I think it was the same reason he ended up dating and marrying Courtney Love was because she was opinionated and a kind of abrasive and very smart and they liked the same music and they had a lot of the same mental health hang-ups yeah and and she kind of challenged him in that way that I think he he always really liked I think he liked he liked women who challenged him he liked women who were who who, who affected him that way okay. but to get back to the idea of like his influences um if you if you take a look at like his personal writings, you can tell that there was a side of Kurt that liked you know liked jangle pop and liked uh, liked you know early fifties rock and roll and you know he was really into Black Sabbath and um, you know and he liked he liked Led Zeppelin. There's a, a, a famous uh, 
piece of tape of him at the very first uh, Nirvana show, someone shouted "Heartbreaker" from the crowd. It might have even been Chris, Chris uh, Novoselitz, the, the 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 bass player, and uh, and Kurt and Kurt going, "I don't know how to play it." And of course, that was a lie. He <laughs> he uh, he knew how to play "Heartbreaker," and they went into the most shambolic, ridiculous. <laughs> to be fair, though, he did a really good job on that, like that central, that new do 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 do. Like yeah, yeah. He he could play that song. He could not sing like like uh, Robert Plant. Few can. Few can. But you know, so so I think you know if you if you look at what kind of music Kurt was into. It, it it would be kind of it would be surprising, but I also feel like it wouldn't have been too surprising because I think you know like his kind of generation coming of age during the eighties and then later on especially like our generation like the amount of music from all over the world and the amount of different genres that were kind of like melding into each other uh, during the during the eighties and definitely later on in the nineties means that it's it's kind of harder i think these days to point to to look at a band and go oh these are you know this band is definitely influenced by x and y and z and um i think you could probably say the same thing about nirvana like they're very representative of a grunge sound but i think that's because um they they were influenced by so much stuff around it in the same way that, like, um, you know, I, I'm I'm a big fan of hardcore punk. Um, one of my favorite bands is Minor Threat. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say that Minor Threat were ever the fastest band or, like, the most technically adept band or, you know, even wrote the most memorable songs. They wrote some great songs. But I think that they are the archetypal hardcore band because they have so many elements of what made that sound and that scene that that's kind of why they are remembered so fondly and, and pointed towards when you talk about that genre. And it could be, I don't know if you might say the same is true of Nirvana in a way that like Pearl Jam was always kind of like, because Eddie Vedder had such a, like that, that soaring vocal, yeah. like his, his vocals were much cleaner than Kurt's. Then that always had more of like a stadium vibe. Like you always knew Pearl Jam like belonged in big venues. Yeah, yeah, and and I think you're right. I I think if you if you took fifty Americans, we'll say, mm. and said you know, name a grunge band, I think pretty much all of them, their first answer would be Nirvana. Mm. Yeah. Um, not all of them, but I think enough of them. Um, mm. and and I think that's true. Like whether you're talking to people who really know their music or people who, you know, just kind of have the, the radio on in the background, you know, yeah. at work or whatever. Uh, they they are they are the the in some ways in the public consciousness, they are kind of the prototype. Mm. Because that was the first time, you know, uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit was the first time that people heard exactly what was coming out of the Pacific Northwest. Mm. Um, I say people, I mean, you know, broadly the across broad- oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, I think, I think, you know, the, for, for all the reasons that you, you know, mentioned with Minor Threat, like why you think they're archetypal, I, I think, uh, you know, you can say the same thing about Nirvana in the sense that, you know, their, their music was, you know, they, they were not the heaviest mm. band. Uh, they were not, in, in some ways they were not the most aggressive. No. Um, 
I've heard, you know, some some you know bands in the spectrum of runs that are that are a lot, you know, mm. a lot more abrasive, a lot angrier. Uh, but but I, I and I wish I could pinpoint exactly what it is that you know you could say like yes these are the ones. Mm. But I think it's a combination of like the vocals, the lyrics, uh, the the aesthetic really. Um, yeah. The you know the visual aesthetic and you mm. know in their in their videos and just in how they presented themselves, they are I think what m- most people yeah think when they think grunge yeah I think you know I know we keep coming back to the Beatles but I think it's it's interesting you know the, the Beatles were not the only band that had that Mersey beat sound yeah and they were not the only band that were a part of the British invasion but more than any other band that came over to the states from britain more than any other band that kind of like were were in that kind of like merseyside liverpool manchester like you know that that region of the country that that had that 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 sound which became you know later described as the mersey beat you know like um i think there was a people point to the beatles i think and and what made them stand out was in the same way that like Nirvana were the band that represented punk that represented grunge like you could point to the Beatles and be like they represent every aspect of this you know they're not quite as rough and ready as the Kinks yeah. you know they're not as um they're not as dangerous as the Rolling Stones you know they're yeah. they have those elements and what's interesting there is that with the Beatles you had you had Brian Epstein you had mm. you had somebody who was methodically managing their image mm. uh, you know when they came back from Hamburg they were wearing you know like the kind of, they look kind of like teddy boys yeah and he was like no we're, we're not doing that you're wearing suits like you mm. know I'll, I'll let you kind of get away with the hair thing but you're wearing suits in, in interviews here's how you act here's what you do mm. and so it's interesting to me that you know they they embodied you know like you said that that Merseyside sound and an image and everything else but Nirvana, as far as I know, did not have a manager that was telling them like, "Okay, mm. you guys are, you know, you guys are the grunge guys, so you're going to wear flannel and you're mm. going to wear, you know, this." And Kurt, like, when you go out on stage, here's what you're going to do. Like in interviews, you're going to do, mm. you know. So it's it's this very interesting dichotomy between a group that was very image managed. Yeah. Um, it might not have seemed it, but it was, and a group of people who were very anti that. Yeah, yeah, and and it, it certainly comes from that. From that punk rock, uh, like that punk bass that they all that that those you know, what eventually became like the 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 core trio of Nirvana. There were a number of lineup changes early on, but you know, finally Dave Grohl kind of like joined the band, and 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 that was that was it. You know, yeah. that that core trio, and uh, yeah, it's it's interesting that it, I think I think you could almost say that Nirvana were the first band like. They kind of, you wouldn't say they were the first band, but the grunge scene, more than the punk scene, mm-hmm. which, you know, kind of got co-opted somewhat in popular media, more than punk, though, grunge really became like, it started out as just like, we wear tattered jeans because we're too poor to, to afford them. But but that whole look combined with the music and combined with the magnetism of, you know, like your Kurt Cobain's or your Eddie Vedder's or or what or, or your Scott Weiland, who we yeah. played earlier. Um, like that kind of like combination of of look and sound and, and, and fashion like had like an impact. 
and pretty soon everyone was wearing torn up jeans and and it's interesting to to kind of compare that to like you said how you know the the Beatles had a had a very distinct look that they were working on and then they would influence other bands afterwards whereas yeah you have this you have this it's it's like a mirror image in a way you know yeah. like of of like here's the here was the popular band that influenced music for like a generation after them um, and whose influence can still kind of can still be hurt anytime you hear like a fuzzy guitar, you know. Riff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a it's it's fun to consider that. Um, what I w- wanted to do now, because we are we are running through our show here, and we're hoping you're enjoying it too, um, is uh, I-, I wanted to kind of like look at some of the bands that uh, Nirvana covered. We played a couple of covers of, of their groups, and we played a couple of bands that influenced Nirvana's sound. But I think what's really interesting, and what's always fun, is to see who Nirvana covered when they uh, you know when whenever they were in the studio messing around or in the case of some in the case of our next track uh, appearing on uh, you know radio shows or what have you um, so uh, you're gonna hear three very different tracks from very different acts that all of whom the band loved and uh, we're gonna kick things off here with a cover of Scottish fey pop duo the Vaseline. <laughs> Um, this was from a, a John Peel session that they did for BBC Radio 1 uh, back in 1990. So this was before the release of Nevermind, actually, uh, during one of their first appearances in the United Kingdom. Um, John Peel was a radio DJ whose influence cannot be denied for, for decades. Oh, yeah. His, he broke a lot of bands and he would play just anything he liked. And so um, he had a lot of great bands come through and do do sessions for his show. Uh, this comes from um, the Incesticide uh, collection, which came out right after Nevermind and was kind of like just a collection of like B-sides and live recordings and stuff like that. Um, it's a really fun, uh, really fateful cover of Son of a Gun. And uh, hope uh, we hope that you enjoy it.
Did you know you can donate a car, truck, motorcycle, or other vehicle to BFF.FM? Your donation will directly support, mentor, and provide opportunities for our Bay Area radio DJs. Just call 855-500-RIDE to donate that old vehicle. We accept most cars, trucks, trailers, boats, RVs, motorcycles, off-road vehicles, heavy equipment, and other motorized vehicles. As long as they're in one piece, have an engine, or even towable, we'll take it off your hands. It's easy, convenient, and you'll be directly helping the San Francisco Bay Area music community. Just call 855-500-RIDE to donate today. That's 855-500-7433. Oh 
Well, you know, we could not stop the Bowie pattern. The, he, he, he returns again. He returns again. He will always return. And, and let's face it, you, you can't really play a Nirvana cover of someone without at least touching on that. Like, one of, one of the best covers that they ever did. Yeah, absolutely. That was The Man Who Sold the World, and we were actually talking about how it's, it's a beautiful cover, and it's quite faithful to David Bowie's original, but we were talking about how, like, the, their, their, their difference in, in, in vocals um, gives their, their each rendition of the song, like, their own very different feel. Mm-hmm. Like I think you, I think you put it really well that the Kurtz version, the Nirvana version, uh, because of Kurtz, um, kind of more raspy vocals and and, and a sort of, it, it, it kind of comes across as more of a weary tone. Yeah, and I think that that particular cover really shows that they like they they made that song their own, mm. and to the point that like I that was the first version of that song that I ever heard, and so mm. for many years. I thought that that was a a Nirvana song, mm. and then I found out that actually no, it's a David Bowie song, yeah. and it's just it's it's amazing to me how they can take a song from David Bowie, one of the most iconic artists of the 20th century, mm. and just completely make that a Nirvana song. Yeah, it's it was it's a it's a beautiful version. And uh, before that, you heard Son of a Gun, originally by the Vaselines, and that was recorded by Nirvana in 1990 for a BBC John Peel session. Uh, interesting little tidbit here. John Peel was a very big fan of, of Nirvana. Uh, he played them a lot over the years, right from like from about 1989 onward, so from about as long as they had. Yeah. They had material. Uh, what's interesting here, there's a quote here from uh, Margrave of the Marshes, which is a biography of Peel. Mm-hmm. His wife, Sheila, recalled that Nirvana were a band much loved by all the family. And after Cobain's death, quote, John met the children off the school bus, off the school bus and broke the news to them in such the same manner as if it had been a close family member who had died. Oh, wow. Yeah, like they were... So he, he, was, he was very, very fond of the band. And they recorded quite a few sessions with John Peel whenever they were in the UK, uh, of which that was just one great track. Awesome. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, uh, our celebration of Nirvana must come to an end. Uh, We are almost at the top of the hour, but we are going to leave you with one final track. Uh, This is, of course, the uh, final song from In Utero, which is celebrating 30 years today, September 21st. Uh, It is, of course, All Apologies. And uh, we hope that uh, you have enjoyed this as much as we've enjoyed talking and playing. And until next week, take care, everyone, and stay rocking. Make art. Love life.